please keep your Bibles open there at Acts chapter 27. And we'll get back to there shortly. I want to talk to you about uh, one man who is more important to the English language than Shakespeare. Uh, his name is William Tyndale. He was born in 1494 in England. And in the early 1500s, William Tyndale made it his life ambition to translate the Bible into plain English from reliable Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament manuscripts. He had this to say, If God spare me, I will one day make the boy that drives the plough in England, even the most uneducated farmhand, to know more of Scripture than the Pope himself. This was a dangerous ambition. At this time in history, even to own or distribute the Bible in English, you'd get in trouble for it. You'd be in jail, you could be killed. And so Tyndale spent most of his life on the run and in hiding, largely in mainland Europe. But as well as having this threat on his life because of his ambition to put the Bible into plain English, he also faced many disappointments. As he was constantly on the move, he was often studying and working in dark and dingy conditions. Uh, he was often let down and betrayed by people round about him. In 1529, he was sailing to Hamburg to have his translation of Deuteronomy uh, printed. It would be the first of the Old Testament to be ever translated into English. He's gone onto the ship to travel up to Hamburg, and what should happen? But a shipwreck. He loses everything. All his money, all of his reference books all of his translations, all lost. He could have been thinking, I have come so far, I have given up so much to serve God and his mission. And now God has given up on me? What would, what would um, Tyndale do? Well, he started again. Within just a few months of hard work, he had done the whole of the first five books of the Old Testament all over. Eventually he was arrested and he was held in a damp and dark cell underground adjacent to the river. It was dingy conditions, yet there he was still determined to finish his Old Testament translation. He had this to say, I suffer greatly from cold in the head and am afflicted by a perpetual catar, that's like a mucousy sinus infection, which is much increased in this cell. My overcoat is worn out, my shirts are also worn out, and I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar and Hebrew dictionary, that I may pass the time in that study. He's, he's committed to this not because he's just some intellectual academic, but he wants to keep on the work of putting the Bible into plain English so that even the ploughboy in England may know more scripture than the Pope himself. On the 6th of October, 1536, at the age of 42... Tyndale uh, was defrocked as a priest uh, in England. His, his garments were removed. His palms were scraped with a sharp implement to, as a sign of removing the oil of anointing that priests would have. He was taken out. 
He was attached to a post, he was strangled and then burned. His last words were a prayer. Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Only a few months after Tyndale's death, the complete English language Bible was licensed by King Henry VIII and two-thirds of it was Tyndale's work. Now what kept him going? What enabled him to persevere, to endure danger and trial and disappointment again and again and again? I'm giving up so much for your mission, God, and I just copy a hard time. What might keep him going? He wrote this during his life. If God send thee to the sea and promise to go with thee and to bring thee safe to land, he will raise up a storm against thee to prove whether thou wilt abide by his word and that thou mayest feel thy faith and perceive his goodness. You'll be glad I don't preach in this language all the time, aren't you? For if it were always fair weather and thou never brought into such jeopardy, whence his mercy only delivered thee, thy faith should be but a presumption, and thou shouldst be ever unthankful to God and merciless unto thy neighbour. Okay, I've given it to you in, in Tyndale's language, now let's transport it into our language today. Tyndale is so convinced of God's promise to be with him and sustain him that he doesn't feel that God is less present in trial, but God is actually more present in trial. That when trial after trial comes, when danger after danger comes, when disappointment after disappointment comes, that is the moment that God is proving his faithfulness to Tyndale and to his follower. And in that moment, he is strengthening our faith, our confidence in God's promise. Now, we don't wish for trial. We don't pray that trials will come. But we do wish to know God's faithfulness like Tyndale did. We perhaps can't imagine being persecuted. We can't imagine what it would be to have the whole of England looking out for us, to have spies travelling around, looking for us around the corners and in the, in the corridors and in the, in the dungeons. Probably none of us know what it's like to go through a shipwreck. At most, tipping over our fishing canoe in the lake might be as much as it comes to. But each of us do face dreary days of disappointment. And we need to know God's promise to be present with us, to sustain us and to strengthen us. That's what Tyndale knew and believed. And this is not wishful thinking. This is the consistent experience of God's people. And we're going to now go back 1,500 years further to the time of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 27. It shares with us this dramatic moment in Paul's life. No Mediterranean cruise, as Chris pointed it out. But in the midst of it, we see that God can be trusted. Acts chapter 27, we're kind of coming to the climax of God's mission going out to the ends of the earth. And here we have this chapter to show that in all things, God can be trusted. 
And if you've only joined us uh, today, or if you're not familiar with the movement of the book of Acts, uh, in, this, in these later chapters, Paul is being sent to Rome. Up the top there, the purple country, Italy, the boot. And the red arrows across is kind of the journey that uh, this boat, this Mediterranean cruise that Paul was on, uh, the path that it travelled. Paul is being sent to Rome for a trial before the Roman Emperor Caesar. Now, for looking across the whole of the book of Acts, we are looking for the fulfilment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that, that key verse where Jesus said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and into all Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are expecting Jesus' gospel mission to go out to the ends of the earth. And there's this specific promise that Paul will bear witness in Rome. How he ends up in Rome is not quite as we expect and possibly not quite as Paul expected. But this is why this journey is happening, to fulfill God's promise that the gospel witness to Jesus would go to Rome. But it's no easy, straightforward sailing journey. There is danger that builds even more around Paul. Luke highlights the danger in his retelling of history here. Now we haven't talked about whether Luke was present or not. I don't know if you picked up a few chapters back, Luke changed from in, into saying we, 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 as he's recording history. And I think the best explanation is that Luke was actually present for a large part of this. Paul often had travelling companions and I, can, I think by the description that Luke gives here and the type of history that he is writing, that he is present here. He certainly got a good picture of the danger that's surrounding Paul and he highlights it in this chapter. Let's have a look at just a few words in, in some of the chapters, or some of the verses. Verse 4, he describes the wind as being against us. Uh, in verse 7, he says they're making slow headway. They had difficulty. The wind did not allow them to hold their course. Verse 8, they progressed with difficulty. Verse 9, much time had been lost. The sailing had become dangerous. Verse 10, Paul says that the trip is going to be disastrous and bring great loss. Down in verse 14, they're dealing with a wind of hurricane force called the Nor'easter. Verse 15, the ship was caught by a storm. It could not head into the wind. They had to give up and be driven along by it. In verse 17, they are fearing that they would run aground. Verse 18, they're copping a violent battering. Verse 20, the storm continued raging such that they gave up all hope of being saved. Verse 21, it has been so severe that they go without food. And we later see that that was for 14 days. There's this emphasis of danger. And that's not the end of it. Verse, from verse 27 onwards, we see that they do actually end up shipwrecked, swimming ashore. Verse 41, verse 41, the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. And that's not enough. When Paul washes up on shore, he's then bitten by a snake. Chapter 28, verse 3. 
Paul has been beaten. Paul's been stoned. Paul's been left for dead. He's been threatened with flogging. He's been imprisoned. He's been falsely accused. He could have been thinking, God, I have come this far and now you have given up on me. Has that question ever crossed your mind? Conscious of what it's cost you to follow after Jesus and as trial and disappointment has come, you've God, have you given up on me? One of my mates from Bible college uh, headed off to Vietnam as a missionary with the intention of never coming back. Sold up everything here in Australia. Didn't go out with a mission mission agency, set up his own business and and all kinds of things in in, Vietnam. in Vietnam, I'm going to be very careful not to mention his name uh, because he works in a place where the gospel is not welcome. He runs a couple of different businesses to support himself and then kind of in his spare time he trains and equips pastors and preachers uh, who come from all over Vietnam. Uh, he's one of the most fluent speakers of Vietnam from the Western world, so much so that he lectures in Vietnamese in uh, mainstream universities to teach Vietnamese Vietnamese. Uh, an, an amazing guy. He, he married a, a, a pastor's uh, daughter uh, in Vietnam. He's had two children. He's there for life to see the gospel to go to Vietnam. About two months ago, he got a little bit sick. He got sicker and sicker and he got more and more depressed. He ended up in hospital and none of the antibiotics or treatments that we were giving were making any impact on what was going on in his, his stomach. He had this wicked bacteria that he had caught through some contaminated water that had washed some fruit and vegetables that he had that he'd eaten and he was really sick. He was in a really dark, dark place. They sent me an email during the week to say I was ready to give up on God. One particular sleepless night that had gone on several days he said I thought I had actually given up on God because I was convinced that God had given up on me I had left Australia I left so much behind to go and serve God here and it's seeming like he'd given up on me about three weeks ago uh, he had to be medevaced uh, out of Vietnam and brought back here to Australia Uh, A guy who's six foot eight and this much wider than me who lost 30 kilos in about two weeks. Uh, The parasite has destroyed almost all of his colon. Uh, For two months he hasn't been able to eat food and will have trouble digesting food again. He won't be able to return to Vietnam because of his health. Uh, His wife and his children are Vietnamese uh, citizens. He's now got to try and finish up his business and move them back here. He's he's just asking this question. Has God given up on me? At 6.30 this morning, he was released from hospital in Sydney after being in hospital for about two months. And he posted on Facebook Psalm 68, a psalm that talks about facing death and God bringing us through the other side until salvation. Psalm 68 verse 20 says, Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. He is praising God this morning, not because he is well, 
Not because he is released from hospital, but God has shown that he is faithful. Gav can look back through all the dark days and see that through them all, God has stayed with him, that God has provided for him. And with all the uncertainty that's still in the future, God will work out his good plans and purposes for him. Has the question ever come to your mind? Has God given up on me? Gav has learned that God is not less present in his trial, but actually more present. God proves his faithfulness and strengthens his confidence in those promises. Now this is exactly what happens for Paul as well on that Mediterranean cruise. Paul's steady confidence and hope is in God and his promise. Have a look with me please in verse 22. Verse 22, chapter 27, verse 22. But now I urge you, Paul is talking to the other people on the ship, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of God, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Keep faith, Paul says. Not keep faith so that this will happen. Believe that God will do what God has promised to do. We can think of Paul as a superhero, super-Christian, and, and, and that, that, that super-faith uh, that we think that he has is made possible by a special word from God or a special experience of God, and, and here that it came direct through an angel. But whether God's word of promise comes through the lips of Jesus or through a vision or through an angel or whether it comes to us in the word of God in the Bible, it is no more or no less God's promise. And see, the only reason that Paul stands out in his faith is because, of, because what he believes about God is true. Faith only makes sense because of the truthfulness and the faithfulness of the object of our faith. Faith only makes sense because of who God is. And so Paul, he doesn't feel that God is less present in this shipwreck, but actually more present. In this trial, God proves his faithfulness and strengthens Paul's faith. God did it for Tyndale. God does it to my mate Gav. God does it for us. Do the promises of God sustain you in the storm? Are the promises of God the source of your steady composure through life? We know that trials will come. And God gives us his sure word of promise to lead us safely home. God is in control over all history, working out his good plans and purposes. Sometimes 
by rescuing us from the danger, sometimes by giving us the ability to persevere in the midst of suffering that might go on and on and on. Sometimes by giving us the special provision of courage to face death. Paul knows that no matter what happens in the lives of believers who trust God, they can be certain that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his good purpose. Paul knew and believed and hung on to the promises of God. Do we know, believe and hang on to the promises of God? For Paul, he would have known his Old Testament really well, probably had memorised the entire book of Psalms, the collection of hymns used in temple worship. And if he only remembered one, he probably would have remembered Psalm 121. I'm going to put the first few verses up on the screen and I'm going to invite us to read these out loud in a little while as a sign of our belief and testimony to God's promises. But let me point out a couple of things about them first. Psalm 121 is a a pilgrim song. One of the songs that Old Testament worshippers would have sung as they were ascending to Jerusalem for religious festivals and for worship in the temple. It was a song designed to reorientate them to God and his promises and what it looks like to follow after God. So verse 1 says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? This is not not a, a desperate question being asked into an empty sky. Now the one who sings this song knows the answer. Verse 2, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We know and are loved by the one who made and sustained all things. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. God will never be asleep on the job. He watches. Pay attention to how many times the word watches appears in these next couple of verses. Verse 4, indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. Now remember, this is a, a travelling song. This is a road trip song for God's people as they're going up to Jerusalem. God's watching over them. He will be their shade by the sun and by the moon at night. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. God is in control over all of history. God is working out his good plans and purposes. Sometimes he will rescue us from danger. Sometimes he will give us the ability to persevere in the midst of suffering when it might go on and on and on. Sometimes when we are to face death, God will give us special provision of courage to face that. 
But through it all, God gives us His sure word of promise to lead us safely home. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He'll watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. As much today and for us as He did for His Old Testament Israelites, as much for us as He did for His Apostle Paul, as much for us as He did for Tyndale, as much as us as He's done for our brother Gav. Through it all, God gives us His sure word of promise to lead us safely home. I'm going to invite us now to read out Psalm 121 together as our testimony. If, if this is true for you, if you want these words to be fixed in your mind to shape the days ahead for you of disappointment and danger and trial, then let's say these out loud together. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore.